Nehemiah 50. Lord willing, time willing, we're going to actually finish the book of Jeremiah here tonight. We're going to be in Jeremiah 50, and we're also going to be in Ezekiel 33. If you want to go ahead and go to both those, Ezekiel's pretty easy to find. Just go to the right of Jeremiah, and you'll find Ezekiel once you get past Lamentations. We're also going to be in Ezekiel 33 there as well. Should have looked here before we started our study in Jeremiah to see how long we've actually been in the book. It has been uh, quite the book, and it's been a blessing of a book. And it's kind of sad to end it, but it's always kind of fun to see what the Lord has in store next. Now, if you weren't with us last week, we did a big chunk of Jeremiah. We did 46, 47, 48, and 49. And we went through, I believe it was, seven different nations. And these last few chapters all deal with judgment. And there was only seven different nations that God was telling about the judgment that came. And we talked about how in each one of them, what they did wrong to deserve that judgment. And on our sheets, if you remember, we had at the top, it says, God never forgets. And it listed all the things that these nations did wrong to be deserving of that judgment. Because God never forgot what they did. But then at the bottom of that sheet, we put on how God forgets. And we went to those great passages where it says that God will remember our sins no more. And so it's amazing God's memory. He will never forget the sin that has been done against His people. That that sin has to be paid for and taken care of. But yet through Jesus Christ, when we can have forgiveness of sins... Just like that, we're made righteous and clean in Christ, and God remembers our sin no more. And then we also talked about in Jeremiah 46 through 49 on how some of those nations actually at the end, and if you study out biblical prophecy, those nations at the end turn back to the Lord. And what a beautiful picture it is that you see these heathen, sinful nations in the Old Testament, but you see how they come to know God correctly and rightly. Now... Continuing that flow here in Jeremiah 50 and 51, it's two huge chapters on prophecy concerning Babylon. If you look, chapter 50 is 46 verses and chapter 51 is 64 verses. And these aren't little tiny verses. These are big verses, big chapters. And we can really sum up Jeremiah 50 and 51 like this. Babylon gets utterly destroyed. That's part of the reason why we don't have a sheet tonight. Because when I was going through this list, I started saying, well, how do you make a sheet out of this? How many times can we put on there, Babylon gets destroyed? And that's exactly what happens is Babylon gets destroyed. You you can't go visit Babylon today. It's not there. It doesn't exist. Now, the amazing thing about Babylon, though, if you remember our study from our study in the book of Revelation, is Babylon will be rebuilt And that's one of the end times prophecies. And I have this wonderful article from the New York Times written back in 2004 where they talk about rebuilding Babylon. And they actually, and it says right in the article, that they want to turn Babylon into a tourist attraction with hotels, etc. One of the things that Saddam Hussein tried to do in the 80s and even up to the early 90s before the first Gulf War is he invested a lot of money into trying to rebuild Babylon. But Babylon, as it is today, is not... The city that it was. It just is not there. Because it was utterly and completely destroyed. And part of the reason why it was utterly and completely destroyed because this was one of the bad nations. This, this nation was awful. This nation was an absolutely awful nation. God used it as a disciplining rod on Israel. He used it as a disciplining rod on Israel. And if you look through this chapter, Jeremiah 50 and 51... Just how God is going to destroy it. Look here in verse 1 of Jeremiah 50. The word that the Lord spoke against Babylon and against the land of the Chaldeans by Jeremiah the prophet. Declare among the nations. Proclaim and set up a standard. Proclaim. Do not conceal it. 
Say Babylon is taken, Bel is shame, Merodach is broken in pieces. Those are Babylonian gods. Her idols are humiliated, her images are broken in pieces. God's saying, I'm going to destroy her. How? For out of the north, a nation comes up against her, which shall make her land desolate, and no one shall dwell therein. They shall move, they shall depart, both man and beast. And that's what happened. Babylon was utterly destroyed to a wilderness. Now, I find this fascinating. Because in verse 3, out of the north, a nation comes to destroy Babylon. Now, we know from history that nation was the Medes and the Persians. They came and destroyed Babylon. But isn't it interesting, that phrase, out of the north, we just used that phrase last week. Because last week, the nation coming out of the north to do judgment was what? Babylon. So God says, well, it's time now for Babylon to be judged. So I used Babylon as a judgment tool. Now it's time for Babylon to be judged. Now, before you start saying, this isn't really fair. And I sometimes struggle with that. It's like, okay, God, through this whole book of Jeremiah, you keep talking about how you're going to use Babylon again and again and again. This is your judgment tool. But then yet, now you're going to judge Babylon for being the bad guy, even though you told them to be the bad guy. That just doesn't make sense. It's like me telling my child, go ahead and touch it. And once he touches it, I tell him, now I have to discipline you for touching it. See, but here's the problem. Why did Babylon have to be judged for doing what God told him to do? Look at verse 10. Of Jeremiah 50. And Chaldea, another name for Babylon, shall become plunder, and all who plunder her shall be satisfied, says Lord, because you were glad, because you rejoiced, you destroyers of my heritage, because you have grown fat like a heifer threshing grain, and you bellow like bulls. Here's the problem, verse 11. Babylon enjoyed it too much, being God's destructive force. Now, before you think that's unfair, that's not unfair. God is saying your nature came out. See, there's numerous examples in the Bible of where God uses a person or even groups of the tribes of Israel as a judgment force. And what you see them is a humbleness in their heart that they really don't want to do it. It's not that they enjoy seeing destruction. It's not that they enjoy seeing people be killed. That's not what they want in any way whatsoever. And that's what you kind of see here is with Babylon, though, instead of saying, boy, we need to take this seriously because this is a big thing that God has given us. Hey, they enjoyed it way too much. Turn, if you will, to Exodus 32. Exodus 32. Babylon's nature came out when God wanted to use them. And so when their nature of destructiveness came out, God says that is a sin that also has to be judged. It goes back to what we talked about last week. God is completely fair, just, and righteous. He will not allow sin to go uncovered. He will not. That has to be dealt with. Sin will be dealt with one of two ways. It will either be dealt with through Jesus on the cross, or it will be dealt with you in hell through all of eternity. It has to be dealt with. So Babylon committed sin. We can't say, well, Babylon, you did something for God, so it's a little fair exchange, we'll let it go. That's not the way it works. Babylon itself as a nation would have to come to know the Lord, and they chose not to do it. So look what happens here in Exodus 32. My personal opinion, I think Exodus 32 is one of the saddest chapters in the entire Bible. Israel has seen so much. Think about the generation here in Exodus 32. They were the ones that were enslaved in Egypt. They saw every one of those plagues. They saw it. 
They saw the frogs, they saw the blood, they saw the flies, death of the firstborn, the hail, the darkness. They saw all those things. They're, they're the group that came out. They're the group that came out of Egypt, and they're the ones that saw the Red Sea parted. I was just reading that the other day with devotions with the boys. What an amazing story. You know, they're coming to the Red Sea. God puts a cloud between Egypt and them. So Egypt is like in this fog they can't see. All night, God makes the waters part. They get to walk through on dry land. That's the nation. That's the group that got a chance to see all this. This is the group that got to see the water come out of the rock. This is the group that got the manna in the morning. This is the group that got the quail. Think of everything this group saw. So what happens here in Exodus 32, Moses is up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments with Joshua. Well, Moses is taking too long. So what do they decide to do in Exodus 32? They said, well, you know what? Things are going on too long. Look at verse 1. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron, Moses' brother, and said to him, Come make us gods, that we shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not even know what has become of him. So we lost Moses. Aaron, his great leadership, verse 2, Well, let's do this. So Aaron says, take the gold, bring it here. So they brought all their gold. And what does Aaron do in verse 4? He received the gold from their hand. He fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Look at this. Verse 4. Then they said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. If there ever was a group of people I ever wanted to smack, it would be those people right there. They saw all those things. They saw it. How, How could you not see the plagues? Water out of the rock, manna from heaven, quail from heaven, parting of the Red Sea, and forget that God is the one that did it. Forget that God is the one that did it. So, they make this altar, and they have this huge party. So what happens is, God tells Moses, you get down there, and you take a look at this, and you see what's going on. So Moses goes down, And he says, what are you guys doing here? What is going on? So verse 19, it says, So it was as soon as he came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing. So Moses' anchor became hot and he cast the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Then he took the calf which they had made, burned it in the fire, ground it to powder, and scattered it on the water and made the children of Israel drink it. That's the first time of putting soap in someone's mouth, if you will, from that perspective. Verse 21, Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? Verse 22, Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people, they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Verse 24 is one of the greatest unintentional funny verses in the Bible. And I said to him, Whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me. I cast it in the fire, and this calf came out. I mean, just... Those are the people that Jesus died for. I mean, they really are. And before we pick on them too much, that's really just a picture of you and I. Oh, yeah, I mean, I'm not making a molded image of a calf and worshiping it. Yeah, but sometimes I let my my mind wander some pretty stupid stuff. Sometimes I let my eyes watch a program too long. I shouldn't. Sometimes my mind goes to this gossipy thought that I probably shouldn't. I make little golden calves in my head all the time. But this gets to the point that I wanted to say. 
Verse 25, Now when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to shame them among their enemies, Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. And he said, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from entrance to entrance throughout the camp, and let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. Verse 28, So the sons of Levi did according to the word of the Lord, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. If you ever wonder why the tribe of Levi is such an important tribe in the Old Testament, it's because of Exodus 32. When the battle cry went out and God says, I need somebody on my side, it was the tribe of Levi that stood up to do it. And the tribe of Levi did not just stand up to do it. What they did was really quite amazing, and I don't mean amazing in a good way, that they were willing to do that. The reason I take you here and bring this up God uses different people as his discipline stick, if you will. He used Babylon as a discipline stick. Now, Babylon's being judged for doing what God told him to do. Why? Because as we just read in Jeremiah 50, Babylon enjoyed it way too much. The Levites here, well, they did exactly what Babylon did. They went and killed people in the name of God and judgment. Yes, but if you look at the context of this and you look at the rest of it and read about Levi... They were a group of people that saw the seriousness of what they were doing. What does this mean for us today? God's not going to call you and I to go put swords on our belts and go take people out. He's not going to do that. But in the position I'm in as a pastor, guess what I get to do a lot? I get to take a spiritual sword out and go talk to people. I get to do that a lot. I get to go to somebody and say, hey, there's this sin in your life. It's come to our attention. We love you. We want to come deal with you about it. Now, how am I going to respond? Am I going to be Babylon? And enjoy it way too much? Or am I going to be Levi and realize this is a serious situation? And you know what? I have sin in my life as well too. So I want to be careful how I address it with others. There's a great passage in the book of Galatians that says, Brethren, when you overtake a man in any trespass, it says, Be careful. Because we could fall into that same thing. I have seen many men out of this church that are willing to take a sword in their hand and hack people up left and right for the Lord. And the problem is they enjoy it way too much. They love pointing out other people's sin. We don't need Babylons. We need Levites that are willing to say, this is a serious situation, I don't take it lightly, and if I'm going to go address a situation in someone's life, I want to do it in love, I want to do it in truth, and I want to do it, as Galatians says, in a spirit of gentleness, helping them out. Babylon's fault They enjoyed it too much, and God says that is a heart issue that has to be dealt with and has to be sent. So when you read Jeremiah 50 and you read Jeremiah 51, it's not God all of a sudden flipping the tables, saying, I used you, and now I'm going to abuse you. No, Babylon chose to go down the path of darkness, and therefore sin had to be dealt with. Now, does anybody have any quick questions, comments about that? Brian. Yeah, and, and that's probably the best way to describe it is interesting with air quotes. I can remember um, I got saved in 93, 
and I can remember people in the first Gulf War quoting so many prophecies that they said were a fulfillment. And the thing about a prophecy being fulfilled is we should be able to look back now 20 years later and still see it fitting into the context. And looking back now 20 years later, a lot of these so-called fulfilled prophecies really just don't stand up to the test of time. You know, I guess when I read Jeremiah 50, I think Jeremiah 50 is talking about what happened to Babylon and not too many years after this. The Medes and the Persians came down from the north and they utterly destroyed Babylon. That's really what happened there. And I think history and context shows that. I think sometimes as pastors and Bible commentators and preachers, we so bad want to find something new and exciting that no one has ever seen in the Bible and check this out. Or what did Solomon write in Ecclesiastes? There's nothing new under the sun. I remember one time I thought I had this wonderful teaching point. I thought it was amazing. Seriously, I just thought it was amazing. I'd never heard anybody teach on it. And in in a non-prideful way, I was proud of it. I was going home from church one time on a radio, and wouldn't you know it, some pastor on the radio had the same teaching point I did. I don't know how he stole it from me, but he stole it from me somehow. There's nothing new under the sun. So I hear what you're saying there, Ryan, and I've seen the same thing too. People try to take some of these verses and push prophecy into it. I read Jeremiah 50. I think it's the fulfillment of Babylon being destroyed by the Medes and Persians that happened not too long after they took care of Israel. That's the way I take a look at it. And I think, yeah, I agree there too. Anybody else got anything about what we've said here thus far before we move on? Now, real quick, side note. If you want to study out Jeremiah 50, here some more on your own. It's fascinating how God does this. He does like three verses that talks about how Babylon's going to be destroyed. Like verses 1 through 3. Then he does verses 4 and 5 that talks about how Israel's going to be blessed. Then he comes back in like verses 8 through 16 and talks about how Babylon's going to be destroyed. Then he comes back in verses 18 through 20 and talks about how Israel's going to be blessed. Isn't it interesting? Through the first 50 chapters of the book of Jeremiah, Israel's just bad. They're just a bad kid. But at the end, you see God saying, I allowed all this to happen to get my child's attention to lovingly rebuke them. And that's the point. God said, I did this on purpose. Now, somebody a few weeks ago asked a great question. They said, did Israel run into idle problems after God allowed all this judgment to come on them? And if you study Jeremiah out after this, you don't see Israel running into as much idolatry problems as they did before. That seems to get their attention, and and it worked in some ways. The discipline worked. The loving father's discipline worked. Worked. It's a beautiful thing. Now, we're running out of time here. we got some more stuff I want to cover because I want to make sure we can get through this chapter here. So, chapter 50, Babylon being judged. Israel being blessed. We covered why God is doing that. Chapter 51 kind of continues on this a little bit. But it gets a little bit more personal, if you will. And, and there's this, some of these ideas that came where it says that God has a desire for Babylon. And this is a point I want to say. Look here at Jeremiah 51. Look at um, verse 8. Babylon has suddenly fallen and has been destroyed. Wail for her. Now, isn't that interesting? Wail for her. See, Babylon got in trouble because they enjoyed being God's whipping stick way too much. Now God is prophesying, weep for Babylon. Take balm for her pain. Perhaps she may be healed. We would have healed Babylon, but she is not healed. See, God's desire is not judgment. It's not. We keep thinking that's what it is, and that's not His desire. I had you go to Ezekiel 33. Go to Ezekiel 33 here. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. And if you ever run into one of those people 
that just has themselves convinced that God's the mean, angry guy that lives upstairs and loves sending people to hell. Look here at Ezekiel 33.11. Ezekiel 33.11. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. That's God's desire. God's desire is for Babylon to get changed. I read a commentary on this, and this guy said, Do you ever think that maybe part of the reason why the Lord allowed the Jews to be taken captive to go to Babylon, Daniel was one of them, is when we studied out the book of Daniel, is that God may influence Babylon to give them prophets in their own midst that they could preach them and teach to them? Maybe it was. God had such a desire for Babylon to get saved, but Babylon chose to reject it. Now, the neat thing about this, and we're getting ahead of ourselves here a little bit, not all Babylon rejected it. Because if you study out the book of Daniel, you know this Nebuchadnezzar got saved. Nebuchadnezzar, the head of Babylon, the baddest bad guy in Babylon, got saved. You will see Nebuchadnezzar up in heaven. That, that would be the equivalent of, of, of ten years ago, I don't know, Saddam Hussein, Osama bin Laden, stepping forward and saying, we're converting to Christianity. It's an unbelievable thing to stop and think about that Nebuchadnezzar got saved. Now, did the nation get saved? No, but in Jeremiah 51, 8 and 9, you see God's heart. Don't ever doubt God's love and grace for sinners. He loves us so much. His heart's desire is not to see Babylon destroyed. His heart's desire is to see Babylon get healed. Did he allow some of the Jews to be taken, to be go over there and influence them? Maybe. It worked for Daniel a little bit. But that was his desire. He has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I cannot stress to you enough. Mark down Ezekiel 33.11 because that will pop up sometime when you're witnessing and talking to people. Because God truly does care. Why did Babylon not want the Lord? Stay here in Jeremiah 51. I think this is interesting that God would point this out. Look at verse 58. Actually, jump back a little bit here, if you will. Uh, instead of verse 58, look at verse 57. For I will make drunk her princes and wise men, her governors, her deputies, and her mighty men, and they shall sleep a perpetual sleep and not awake, says the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the broad walls of Babylon shall be utterly broken, and her high gates shall be burned with fire. The people will labor in vain in the nations because of the fire, and they shall be weary. Now, you don't want to, just as we talked about earlier, you don't want to make the Bible say things that the Bible is not saying. But when it's talking about the destruction of Babylon here in verses 57 and 58, I find it very interesting in verse 57, it talks about them becoming drunk. Because when you study out the book of Daniel, how was Babylon defeated? If you remember correctly, Belshazzar was having a party and got drunk. And as he was drunk at the party... That's when they were defeated. And it's interesting in verse 58, the broad walls of Babylon shall be utterly broken. If you study out the Bible, how was Babylon defeated? They lowered the water level because they couldn't bust through Babylon's walls, and they snuck in. These walls of Babylon were one of the original ancient wonders of the world. I wrote down some stats on this because they've done some archaeology on this to get the dimensions on it. And some are they're, they're all over the place. The dimensions. So I picked the low end to not exaggerate some of these. These some of these walls were up to ninety feet thick, and potentially a hundred to two hundred feet tall. Sometimes three deep, and they went on anywhere from ten to twenty miles worth of walls. Now, some, for some of you, that's it's difficult to envision that. 
And, but if you stop and you think about it, if I remember the dimensions of this sanctuary, I think are 80 foot. Does that sound right, Rose? Yeah, I think it's about 80 foot. No, it's farther than that. It's farther than that. It's 2,000 feet. The sanctuary is 2,000. 48, 48. I remember the 48 wide. I thought it was about 80 foot. So if you think about this, if this is 48 foot wide, we're talking walls that would be twice as wide as this room. That's a big wall. And this is not stuff that's... I mean, they dug, they, they've studied this out. These walls were huge. That's why these walls were impenetrable. You're talking walls potentially 100 foot thick, walls maybe 100, 200 feet tall. You're talking 10 to 20 miles of walls. That's why they got drunk in the middle of it because they thought they had nothing to worry about. Is that not a picture of the world? They think they have nothing to worry about. They trust in their walls. I don't know how many times I've heard people say, I'm a good person. You know, I'm a good person, so I know when I stand before the Lord, I know I've done some wrong things, I've done some bad things, but I'm a good person. I tell you, sometimes people's morality and goodness is what leads them to hell. Because they are good I tell you, you've heard me say this before. I've met non-believers that are nicer than Christians. I know non-believers that are more moral than some Christians. But that morality paves a path to hell. Babylon was trusting in their walls. And their walls couldn't save them. And, And I wonder what we trust in in our life that cannot save us. Now, I would assume most of us here tonight know Christ personally as our Savior. It's not that we're trusting in something That does not lead to salvation. But I also wonder in our own spiritual life, what do we trust in that keeps us from a closer intimate relationship with the Lord? You know, do we trust in our own willpower? I can say no to that anytime I want, because you can't. Do we trust in our own goodness, our own knowledge? Yeah, I should probably read the Bible a little bit more, but I study a lot. I pray a lot. I'm good. Do we trust in our own service? I serve the Lord enough. What walls do we trust in that we think we're solid and steady and strong when really those walls are keeping us from a deeper, closer relationship with Christ? See, Babylon trusted in their walls, and as Babylon trusted in their walls, it actually led to their destruction. See, Babylon, time showed, was this prideful, evil nation that God cared about, wanted to see them made right, but Babylon didn't want to be made right, so therefore destruction and judgment came. Now, I don't want to skip over chapter 52, and I encourage you tonight on your own, go read chapter 52. Chapter 52, and it's kind of neat that they put chapter 52 at the end, because chapter 52 sums up the entire book of Jeremiah. Chapter 52 is kind of the cliff note versions of Jeremiah. You could have just read chapter 52 and skipped the other 51 chapters, but I didn't want to tell you that when we first started the study. But chapter 52 is just a great summary of everything that we talked about here. The previous thing. And it really is a stepping stone into the book of Lamentations, which is just a short little book. It's only five chapters that deals with what happened when Jerusalem was destroyed. So I encourage you in your own devotional time, your own reading, take a look at chapter 52. It's a great chapter. And also verses 59 through 64, 51 is a fun little thing there too, where Jeremiah takes the scroll, they read it, and then they throw it in the river Euphrates and it sinks. And Jeremiah says, just as Babylon will sink. So we're kind of short here on time, so just final point. When you see 50 and 51, you see God's judgment on, on Babylon. But you also see God's grace towards Babylon that they chose to reject. You see Babylon enjoying the sin too much, if you will. Whereas you see the Levites seeing the proper respect. And we have to be careful as Christians. 
Are we the Babylons that love pointing out everybody's faults? Are we the Levites that says, we do this because we have to, but we still care? You also see Babylon here having an opportunity to be healed, as it says in chapter 51, but rejecting that, and it reminds us where it says in Ezekiel 33, God has no joy in the death of the wicked. Oh my goodness, don't ever let the enemy fool you into thinking that God loves seeing people destroyed and judged. No. He wants people to have salvation through Christ. Can I stress that enough? Anybody have any final questions, comments here on our study through Jeremiah? Boy, I'm glad you guys had uh, enjoyed it. I hope 52 chapters, it's a big book. It's a great book. I hope you're blessed by that. And uh, let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer and we'll let you guys go. Heavenly Father, thank you for that study. Thank you for that wonderful study of just who Jeremiah is as a man. And Lord, just your hand on the nation of Israel as well. We just pray that we would truly live what we have learned and practice it. Lord, once again, we think of all the people traveling. So much going on here at the holiday. Just so much. Just pray to keep people safe. Safe with the fireworks. Safe with the traveling. Just go before that, Lord. And we say thank you for the time. We lift this up in your name. Amen. All right. You guys have a good week and God bless.